Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every kid has a dream. Mine was to see a big city. New York City had been at the top of my favorite city list since I was about eight. I collected posters showing the grand sweeping city. And one of the best was a shot that framed the skyscrapers against the darkening sky. My room was full of New York memorabilia, even though I had never been out of Tennessee. The tallest building in Irwin is a old four-story bank building. The bank closed down several years before I was even born, but there are some random offices in there now for the few struggling factories in our tiny industrial park. I longed to see the crowded city streets, bustling with people on their way to diverse jobs, to be swept along in the sea of constant motion, to smell the smells, hear the sounds, and see the sights. Everything would be different in the city. I think everything would be better. I collected anything and everything I could find that symbolized the Big Apple. My dad bought me a giant stuffed pretzel when I was nine. I loved that stupid thing. Still do. And my father indulged me, often buying me hats bearing the logo of the New York Yankees or shirts with touristy sayings splashed across the front like, My dad went to the Big Apple and all I got was a shirt. Cole and Eric, my two best friends, shared my enthusiasm for getting out of shit-splat-nowhere, Tennessee, and going to the city. At 16, we all started stashing 10% of our paychecks in a gallon-sized mason jar in the freezer in my dad's garage. Talk about cold hard cash, huh? Well, we didn't want the money to be destroyed if there ever was a fire so the freezer seemed the logical place to store it. The money was supposed to go towards us visiting New York, but things happen, life happens, and each of us had to make withdrawals from time to time, leaving the stockpile of funds a bit shorter than it would have been. Just before I turned 18, my dad's work truck shit the bed. He'd been driving the thing without a third gear for over a year by then, and the transmission was foobar. The engine threw a rod, and the pitman arm broke as he drove toward the construction site one morning. The whole contraption ended up in the ditch along old man Danvers' tobacco fields. There was almost four grand in that mason jar. I talked to the guys, and we agreed we should donate the money to help get a new work truck for my dad. So, there went the city fund. We were going to graduate in a few months, and we would be able to get better jobs with full-time hours then. We figured it wouldn't take too long to build the money back up. It was rare that Dad came home before bedtime after that. For months, he was gone at sunrise and not home till 9 or 10 at night. When he couldn't get overtime at the construction site, he found odd jobs. Helping build barns, tool sheds, fences, you know, whatever. 
On graduation night, he came to the ceremony, grinning and chest puffed out proud. And after the ceremony, he handed each of us an envelope. There were three round-trip bus tickets, to and from New York City. Behind the bus ticket in my envelope was the hotel reservation. A week in the city. He said it was repayment for us lending him the money to help him get a new truck. And the next day, my dad presented me with $800, saying it was a gift from family and friends. A graduation gift. Cole and Eric received money from their families too. We were over the moon happy and ten kinds of excited. Oh yeah. Our bus was scheduled to pick us up in Johnson City at 7 in the morning. It was going to be about a 12-hour trip, give or take. Our bus and two others were delayed. There were about 40 pissed-off people left at the depot. The weather was for shit. Constant rain and wind had made it impossible to walk around outside to occupy the time. And three hours felt like three days. After about three and a half hours... Two buses showed up and took away most of the people waiting. Our bus arrived almost three hours after that. The only explanation we got was that there had been some mechanical problems with the bus that had to be fixed before it could hit the road again. So our trip started out pretty lousy. Setting out about 1.30 in the afternoon meant we wouldn't reach our destination until after midnight. Although exhausted, we were too excited to sleep when we finally boarded the bus. We got off of 81 in Atkins, Virginia for fuel and a break. There were 16 of us passengers. We disembarked and stretched our legs and bought drinks and snacks. Traffic had been heavy. We had not made good time. Our driver was an older man, gruff but quick to smile. Taking off his hat, he scrubbed his hand back and forth through the scrim of hair he had left, then plopped the hat back on. He muttered to himself angrily. Cole noticed and asked if everything was okay. The man's lightning-quick, toothy smile and vigorous nod were weird, but he said everything was fine, no problems at all. Then he patted the side of the bus the way you might pat a horse's side, you know, as if it were alive. Weirded out by his sketchy behavior, we headed for the store. I was stoked to be finally out of Tennessee for the first time in my life. One of the other passengers asked the driver to take us to the nearest restaurant. When the driver told him it wasn't a scheduled stop, the guy reminded him that waiting at the bus station for over six hours had not been on any of our schedules, and the driver grumbled in agreement. The closest fast food place was McDonald's, good old trusty Mickey D's. We were allowed off the bus with strict warning that we only had 30 minutes. The driver said he would be leaving, and if we weren't all back on the bus, it wasn't his problem. The girl taking orders informed us there had been multiple vehicle wrecks only a few minutes farther ahead on our route. She said it might take hours before the lanes were cleared. Another hitch in our plans. Another delay. Cole, Eric, and I informed the driver. We found out his name was Dan, and that Dan had already had a very bad day. He was not happy about more bad news being dumped in his lap. Punching numbers into a big, clunky cell phone, he listened to a recorded traffic report. Sure enough, 
An accident had blocked up the interstate. The cops were in the process of rerouting all traffic. Dan made a phone call and walked away from us, gesturing for us to go away and leave him alone. After a few minutes, everybody got on the bus, and they were all talking about the wreck, pounding Dan with relentless, worried questions. Where are they going to go? Were they going to be stuck in bumfuck Virginia for the night? Well, announcing loudly that everyone should take their seats and be calm, Dan told us he had found an alternate route. The interstate traffic had been pushed onto one road, and he didn't want to get us stuck in traffic jams, so we were taking a route less traveled. He said it would be the scenic route. Nick's Creek Road wasn't just scenic. It was curvy and ran through the mountains. Passengers were nervous and tensions were high. Nick's Creek Road turned into Sugar Grove Highway for a brief moment, and that turned into Slump Creek. Everyone started to calm when we turned onto Cedar Springs. Now, mind you, none of these roads were laid with bus travel in mind. But I got through the ups, downs, curves, stops, and the nausea. Several times, I thought I would lose what food I had scarfed down at McDonald's. The day wore on, and before long, the sun was hanging low over the western mountain. And that's just it. We were still in the mountains, and sunset would come quick. I hoped Dan could navigate us back to the interstate before nightfall. Not that I was stereotyping the place, but, I mean, really, who wants to be on a bus with a bunch of strangers in the night on a curvy-ass Virginia back road? I'm from Tennessee, and even I didn't want to be there after dark. The bus took a left turn, and the sign read, White Rock Furnace Road. It was narrower, the pavement was not as smooth, and ahead, the mountains closed in thick on either side. It looked even less like a road the bus should be traveling. We crawled along until the road widened out, and we could see a large wooden building on the right. Dan pulled into the parking area, told us he would be right back, and stepped out. He went to the door of the building and knocked and started peeking through the windows. The sign said it was a summer camp called A.R.E. A big yellow paper said the camp was closed until August for remodeling. Dan got back behind the wheel, backed us onto the road, and took us deeper into the mountain, ignoring the barrage of questions from passengers. I tried to call my dad, but I had no cell reception, and apparently... No one else had it either. The engine sputtered and backfired. The bus stuttered and jittered. And then everything straightened out and we kept going. Another 20 minutes in and Dan stopped the bus at the head of the road leading deep into the wooded terrain on the left side. Dan said his scenic route directions said to stay left on Cedar Springs when the road split. And there was no sign on the left-hand road where we sat. I told him the road hadn't split anywhere, so we should just go back and hit Cedar Springs, follow it until we came to anything that looked like a split. But he was adamant that he'd taken the correct turn. Cole then spoke up and told him 
We had seen the sign that said we were on White Rock Furnace Road, to which the driver shook his head and looked agitated. In the end, he decided to stay on the same road, and we continued forward. The engine sputtered and backfired more often, pulling the uphill sections. A half hour later, the bus hitched and coughed out great clouds of black smoke. And then it died. At that point, it was every passenger on that bus pulled out a cell phone. And some of them started immediately swearing as they realized that they didn't have a signal. Cole and Eric were among them. I didn't bother. I mean, why kicking a dead horse? The few who had signals called ahead to let whoever was waiting on them know about the delay. Looking out the windows at the darkening woods on either side, I wanted to panic. Panic wouldn't do any good, though, and I knew it. Besides, there was enough of that going around already. Two burly, macho-acting men stormed to the front, demanding to know what was going to be done about the situation. Dan, well, he tried to ease their minds, saying he had called the roadside service, who would arrive soon. Eric said we should just get out and walk back to the camp building. We could wait there until help came. Cole and I agreed, but Dan insisted we all remained in the bus. He said it would only be a half hour at most. Well, we took our seats near the back of the bus, and I checked my phone just for the sake of checking. It had a lousy one-bar signal that disappeared every time I opened a nap. We settled in for the wait. It was dark out, and the woman two seats up from us asked her companion if he had seen eyes in the tree line. He said he had not. Cole nudged me and asked if I saw anything. Nothing better to do, so I started staring into the darkness, even as I shook my head. But I did see something. Not eyes, but movement. At first, I squinted harder, thinking it was just my eyes playing tricks on me. If you stare unblinking into a dark corner, you will eventually see writhing or pulsating movement there. But if you blink and squint a bit, it's just a dark corner again. Soon, the passengers moved to our side of the bus. Everyone had his or her face pressed close to a window, vying for a glimpse of whatever was out there. It was an exciting little side adventure to pass the time. Harmless. As with everything else in the world, theories about the woman saw ran rampant. It was her eyes playing tricks. Just a raccoon, maybe a deer, possibly tree branches moving in the breeze, allowing a distant light to peek through the dark. Yada, yada, yada. The men who had stormed up to Dan earlier talked between themselves. Seeing them check their watches, I did the same. We'd been waiting a little over 30 minutes, and it was dark outside. They had agreed to follow Dan's advice and stay on the bus earlier, but they weren't in the mood to go along anymore. They demanded to be let off the bus. They had come to the same idea as we had, Go back to the camp building, break in if need be, 
and wait on the roadside service there. Dan had little choice but to let them go. He wasn't a warden after all, he was just a, just an older driver. As soon as they were off the bus, Dan closed the door. The passengers went silent, and all eyes were on the opposite side windows, waiting to see the flashlights from their phones turn on and illuminate part of the darkness. But it remained dark. Their heavy footfalls headed toward the back of the bus, and then there was a scream, a quick sound that would have been missed if anyone had been talking. The older man yelled something that sounded like, Hey! But a whoomph cut off whatever he was going to say. Like, maybe he had been gut-punched. So at that point, Cole leaped to the other seat and pressed his face to the window. I followed, pressing my phone's flash to the window. I mumbled, They're not out there. Others trickled over, tentatively pressing their flashlights to the windows. And low mutters of discontent wended through the bus, and Dan once again tried to calm everybody. He said another 15 minutes and we'd be fine. The other bus would show up with the mechanics, and we would be on our way. An hour later, with the passengers becoming unsettled again, Dan made an announcement. Well... Looks like we're going to be here for a while, folks. Now we're safe in the bus, so just try to relax. Just maybe try to get some shut-eye. The first question on everyone's mind was, How long is a while? Shaking his head, Dan said he wasn't sure, but it would be long enough for a good nap. The second question was, What happened to the two men who left the bus? The driver shoved his hat back inside, shrugging. He said he had no idea, but they were probably back at the camp, breaking and entering by then. My question, one I didn't ask aloud was, what the hell did I keep seeing move out there just inside the tree line? With the dim interior lights, there were reflections on the windows, making it difficult to see anything clearly but I was certain I saw more than one thing skulking around in the shadows. Phone flashlights wouldn't reach far enough to illuminate the trees, so I kept quiet and watched. There was another man, too. A lanky, tall man in jeans and a ratty t-shirt. He pulled a pack of cigarettes from his bag. Three women and a man protested to the point I thought a fight would break out. Dan, the man, came to the rescue, though. He said it was against company policy to smoke in the bus. The smoker said it was against his policy to be stuck in the woods all night on a broke-down bus. Well, Mr. Cigarette opened the door and shot the protesters a bird as he stepped out to have his smoke. The protesters grumbled about the nerve of people who still smoke, and it turned into a soapbox session in which all of them took turns bitching and giving examples of bad adult behavior and, well, somehow that all turned into a political debate. Right wing, left wing, red, blue, liberal, conservative. Turning out, I faced the window while Cole and Eric planned our trip to the Empire State Building. 
Eric flopped into my seat, drawing my attention from the window. Hey, Colin, you think we should stay another day in the Big Apple since we're going to miss a day? We could... Holy shit, did you see that? He yelled, leaning over the top of me, cupping his hands to the window. The other passengers turned towards us, questions in their eyes. And the sound of a muffled voice outside, a brief struggle, and then silence sent Dan scurrying from the driver's seat as he yanked the handle to close the door he had left open. He kept his gaze fixed toward the windshield, but addressed everybody. Well, that's it. Nobody else get off the bus. I think maybe, I think maybe we have bears out there. A young woman, traveling alone, sobbed quietly as the others used their flashlight apps to search through the windows for Mr. Cigarette. He was nowhere to be seen. It wasn't a little side adventure anymore. Eric was adamant he had seen something move in the darkness on our side of the bus only a second before the smoker disappeared. The air inside the bus grew heavy and stale and it stank of sweat and fear. Panic was controlled only by the knowledge that there was no place safer than where we were, on the bus. The older woman tried to console the younger one, but that didn't work. As time wore on, the younger woman became more distressed, more agitated, and sure, she would make a run for it, or she might end up dying on a bus full of strangers. She was sneaky. She waited for the older woman to strike up a debate with Dan before she eased towards the door. I saw her and yelled for her to stop, and all heads turned towards her, and Dan tried to reach for her, but, well, hell, it was too late. I made it near the front and had a clear view of her as she turned toward the driver. The door opened at her back, her arms and legs flew straight out, and her long brown hair closed over her shocked face. The final curtain dropping on the last act. She looked as if she had been yanked backwards by a stuntman's rope tied around her middle. Her sharp intake of air was the only sound. Dan stopped with his foot on the top step, hand outstretched, mouth hanging open. A snapshot frozen in action, and my blood chilled and the cold steel blade of fear ripped into the pit of my stomach. Dan lightly stepped back, closing the door, and moved to the aisle where he stood for several seconds in silence. The others pulled out their cell phones and started searching for signals. When they couldn't get one, they demanded Dan's phone looking as frightened and confused as everyone else. He handed it over like a man in a dream, and then he took a seat. To get a signal, he had to walk to the front of the bus and lean close to the driver's window, and he dialed 911. It rang once and the signal died. He tried again, and a dispatcher answered, but the sound was distorted. The woman just kept saying, Please state your emergency. Hello? Please state your emergency. The man put it on speaker and left the line open as he moved it closer to the windshield and the door. 
He placed a hand on the door release. His younger traveling companion stepped forward, warning him not to open the door. It's only to get a signal. I'm only going to stick my hand out the very top right here. Maneuvering his hand through the slit, he strained to see the phone screen. He tried to give our location, but the call dropped. Cursing, he pulled his hand back inside. The younger man, who was probably his son from the strikingly familiar features, took the man's elbow, coaxing him to hurry back away from the door. In one second, he had his dad's elbow in his hand. and the next, his dad was screaming and fell forward, bashing his face on the top step. His scream was loud and echoed as he disappeared into the night. The young man yelled and darted forward, calling for his dad. dad? The others dad? were stunned motionless. And Cole, always the more athletic of us, sprinted to the front down the steps, and reached into the night, grabbing a handful of shirt to drag the young man back into safety. And by the time I reacted to Cole's brave and, well, foolish act, it was all over. The door was closed again. He yelled over the others that everybody needed to calm down and stay away from the door. The young man sat mutely, staring at the window to his right, was he looking for his father, or was he simply just trying to process what had happened? I, I didn't know, but I felt sorry as hell for him. He sidled up to the window and let his head rest against the glass, his pale face a stark relief against the black. I tried 911 on my phone after that, but the signal was too weak. Dan's phone had only worked when he'd been up front, and that hadn't gone so well for the last guy, so I remained in my seat trying to think of what to do. Silence descended over the passengers, and each person seemed lost in their own thoughts. And the night crept by as I watched out the window for movement. The interior lights began to dim around 2.30, and by three in the morning, they might as well been dead for all good they were doing. The bus's battery was dying. Apparently, 911 wasn't able to trace our location from the call. We decided to take turns using our flashlight apps to alleviate the darkness and a little bit of the fear. The elderly couple clung to each other in silence. I hadn't noticed before that they were communicating with sign language. I mean, how much scarier must it have been for them? And I tried my phone for the hundredth time. The battery was down to about 24%. I darkened the screen, put it back in my shirt pocket, and looked outside. I realized I might be able to send a text message with that one shitty little bar of signal. Snatching the phone again, I wrote a message to my dad, giving him the state and road name of our location, and told him to send emergency services as soon as possible, with a brief explanation, very brief, when I hit the send button. 
The little worry wheel appeared on the screen and spun forever as I held my breath. The exclamation mark appeared besides the text. Message failed to send. Tap to retry. I tapped it. And that time, the worry wheel disappeared. The screen flickered, and the notification that it had been sent appeared by the timestamp. I told the others to try sending texts to anyone who could send police to our location. Three others were able to send. None of us received messages back, though. There was no way to know if the parties on the other ends of those messages had read them. But at least they were sent. And then all of a sudden... The window beside the elderly man exploded inward. People screamed and ducked, covering their faces from the flying shards of glass. And when the screams died, one did not. The old woman screamed and struggled over the broken glass toward the gaping hole in the window. Her husband was gone. The only trace was a ragged piece of bloody shirt stuck to a jagged piece of glass stuck in the frame. Just a few yards away, I caught the shimmer of glowing yellowish eyes from inside the tree line. It was only a glimpse, and then they were gone. Whatever owned those eyes was taller than a man. The woman from the seat in front of the elderly couple stood and leaned over the seat to pull the deaf woman away from the window. Whatever was out there was big enough to snatch a full-grown man out through the high window. I mean, what could grab people so fast that we never caught a glimpse of it in action? The deaf woman's high keening tone tore through the muggy hot air on the bus and it stabbed me right through the heart. I was terrified at this point. Everyone moved from their window seats as the old woman crumpled to her knees, sobbing in the aisle. Everyone except the grieving son. Dan pulled at the young man's arm, coaxing him into a less catatonic state, but he refused to budge from his seat. Finally, he screamed into Dan's face. Not words, just a loud, furious scream of rage and Dan quickly let go of his arm, stepping back in shock. And then the boy's window shattered, and he turned, still in the throes of his rage, still screaming, and was yanked out into the night so quick that a shoe flew to the other side of the bus when his foot struck the window frame. A few silent moments passed, and then for a moment, out in the distance... I could hear the wail of sirens. And it was, the, well, it was the best sound I had ever heard. And the wash of warbling blue and red strobing lights quickly came upon us. Well, I might have just as walked through the pearly gates at that moment. Sunrise blushed the sky to the east as paramedics checked vitals and cops asked questions. The mutilated bodies of the seven victims were found strewn around inside the tree line, not far from the bus. When I went in to give an official statement, I was told the gruesome details of Mr. Cigarette's death. His name was James Ford. He was 33. He had been gutted. 
the police were leaning toward animal mutilations, probably a mountain lion or a bear. An expert was looking over the carnage to make a match with known animals. The two pictures I fleetingly saw as the cop flipped through the file showed not maimed bodies, but dissected ones. We're talking clean cuts, neatly severed limbs, guts that had been taken out and arranged beside them. It reminded me of dissecting frogs in high school biology class. The people in the bus had been studied, not just killed. There was no animal attack, and I told the police that. No known animal hunted people that way, stalked them, snatched them so quickly they weren't even seen. And no animal I ever met could have broken those windows and taken victims straight out of their seats. Hey, I just want to make a quick shout out to Colin. Happy birthday, brother.